Hello, I'm Georges Collinet. August 29, 2015 is the 10th anniversary of Hurricane Katrina and the failure of the levees that put the city of New Orleans underwater. In tribute to the struggles of the last 10 years, we are replaying our hip-deep program made in spring 2005, a few short months before life in New Orleans was turned upside down. Living in New Orleans Part 1 was produced by our longtime correspondent Ned Sublet, who spent the year living in that city and wrote two award-winning books about it, The World That Made New Orleans and The Year Before the Flood. This program was made then, before the deluge. If you hear any anachronistic references, well, we are talking about ten years ago. But the music is for all time. Back again, y'all! <laughs> it's not finished, y'all! We're back again! Irvin Mayfield, Bill Summers, Reaper! Hello, Georges Collini with you on Afropop Worldwide from PRI, Public Radio International. Today, another hip-deep excursion, Living in New Orleans, Part 1, Mardi Gras. And let me introduce you to our special guest today. Here's Ned Sublet. Georges, you look so dapper in that lime green suit. Man, I tell you, I worried for you, Ned, and <laughs> that's quite a red and black outfit you've got on there. Yeah, I wore my Mardi Gras clothes. Well, so that's why you have 10 pounds of beads hanging from your neck? I caught them in combat, a string at a time. Tell me something, mister. So, Ned, what you been doing down there at the bottom of the map? I'm a fellow at Tulane University this year, studying up on history and culture. Uh-huh. You know, the chance to live in New Orleans for a year is too good to pass up. It's a lot of fun to visit the city, but it takes a little time to get under its skin. And to really feel the Mardi Gras, you got to stick around and go through the whole process. But right now, for our first taste of New Orleans flavor today... How about a little musical po' boy? A new version of a Mardi Gras classic from Kermit Ruffins and the Rebirth Brass Band. You mean the Rebirth Brass Band, right? No, no, you gotta say it in New Orleans style. Reboy. <laughs> the big bass drum. Let the big parade. All on a Mardi Gras day. The big bass drum. Let the big parade. All on a Mardi Gras day. All the big bass drum. Say he was feeling fine. 
and the Rebirth Brass Band, Georges Collinet and Ned Sutherland on Afropop Worldwide's Hip Deep, today living in New Orleans. is so overwhelming. How do you start trying to get the handle on it? Number one, get out of the French Quarter. Oh, come on. Well, actually, the French Quarter really should be called the Spanish Quarter. That's right, because there's only one building there from the French period. Ah. The look of the French Quarter dates from the Spanish period. A lot of people think of New Orleans as a French town, but France had basically abandoned Louisiana by 1731. In 1762, France gave the colony to Spain, and Spain ran it as an administrative department of Havana. Huh. And at the time of the American Revolution, Havana was a bigger city than any city in the British colonies. Way bigger. Spain held on to Louisiana during the American, French, and Haitian revolutions. New Orleans really became a city under Spanish rule, and it became an important port during that time, which lasted almost 40 years. Hmm. Spain gave Louisiana back to Napoleon in 1800, but France never actually took possession of Louisiana again until a few days before the Louisiana Purchase. But, you know, the Quarter is such a fascinating place. Why get out of it? Well, the French Quarter is the beautiful, historic core of the city, and it's a must-see for sure. Uh -huh. But most visitors never go beyond it, and that's not where most of the real action is. For example... Good evening. I'm Sylvester, the owner of the back street. Now, you have been down here for Carnival? Right opposite the quarter, just a couple of blocks on the other side of Rampart Street, in the historic black neighborhood known as the Treme, on St. Claude Avenue, in the space formerly occupied by the Blandon Funeral Home, 
the Blandon sign is still up, in fact, there's the small, privately run Backstreet Cultural Museum where Sylvester Francis will personally walk you around. The room where they used to lay out the coffin is lined with giant Mardi Gras Indian suits from years gone by. Well, what we have here is Mardi Gras Indians, and what we do is we honor the America Indians. Now, on Carnival Day, we got groups of guys who dress and perform like American Indians. Now we do that because Americans helped the slaves to run away. Blacks who ran away, they ran to the American Indians. Now we do something different. We make a suit, but our suit have to be hand sewed, one bead at a time, without using nothing old or used. It's got to be a, a hand sewed suit. Now these suits is made to wear two times, okay? It's to wear two times, once on my ride day, what we call Carnival, or St. Joseph Super Sunday. Now, we have 25 Indian tribes, okay? And on Carnival day, the chief is the big thing. So each tribe got anywhere from six to eight members. Each member uphold the chief. Now, Ned, the Mardi Gras Indians are the most famous sport of Carnival, right? Wouldn't you find them commemorated in the big fancy museums? This museum's name is the Back Street, which tells you it's off the beaten path. The Mardi Gras Indians are the most famous part of Carnival to you and me, but if you read the New Orleans paper, they're barely mentioned. Mardi Gras, the way most people think of it, is about the big organizations called Cruz, Rex, Proteus, Bacchus, Toth, <laughs> Muses with their double-decker floats full of people throwing beads interspersed with high school marching bands. New Orleans is still in many ways a very segregated city, even though it's 67% black. The Mardi Gras Indian tradition goes on in black neighborhoods. It doesn't receive institutional support. It takes a lot of work to find it, but it's worth the trouble. More about that in a minute, but first, the most famous group out of New Orleans in the last 30 years is the Neville Brothers. They have a Mardi Gras Indian connection, right? Big time. The four Neville brothers first all came together as one band in the 70s to perform behind their uncle Jolly, George Landry, who was a big chief. It was on an album called The Wild Chapatulas. On that album, they did a version of what a lot of people call the most important song of the Mardi Gras Indians. A lot of tribes do this song. It's regarded as a kind of prayer. It's not like any of the other Mardi Gras Indian songs. It's called my Indian Red. Traditionally, the Big Chief sings it on Mardi Gras morning. Well, from that historic recording, here's the Wild Chapatulas. Mare Kurifayo Oh, my 
Caio. Big Chief Jolly with the Neville Brothers recording as the Wild Chapatulas with My Indian Red, Georges Collinet and Ned Sublet with you on Afropop Worldwide's Hip Deep. Today, living in New Orleans, part one, Mardi Gras. So, Ned, in the Backstreet Museum, they have a collection of Mardi Gras Indian suits? Fantastical creations of beads and dyed plumes. They can be 11 feet high and weigh 100 pounds. Wow. It's heavy work to go around all day wearing one of those suckers. And sometimes <laughs> they get a little last-minute help making them, but mostly the chiefs sew their own suits. In this tradition, sewing is associated with manhood. Here's what Sylvester Francis said. All the sewing we're talking about, 95% of the sewing is done by guys who do the sewing. Okay, not women. Guys do 95% of the sewing. I sewed, sewed all night long. Somebody got sewed, sewed, sewed. I sewed that morning with the carrying on. It takes months of sewing to make a Mardi Gras Indian costume. And they only wear them twice. Then the next year, they do it all over again. At the back street, they have a whole wall of the suits of Victor Harris, big chief of the spirit of Fai-Yai-Yai. Now, to show you that, you don't use nothing from one year to another year. This Fai-Yai-Yai white suit, 2003, right? This army suit is 2002, the blue. 2001, the brown. 2000, the green. 1999, the yellow. 1998, okay? So all this is by a yes, I show you, no tribe wears the same thing every year. Here's Bodoli singing with the wild magnolias. Yeah. 
The Wild Magnolias on Afropop Worldwide's Hip Deep. Now, Ned, the Mardi Gras Indians date back a long time. They predate jazz. The first tribe we know of, the Creole Wild West, dates from the 1880s. But black people were masking in the street long before that, back in the Spanish days. You say masking. They wear masks? No. In New Orleans, words don't mean what they mean anywhere else. Masking <laughs> means going out in costume, but it doesn't mean wearing a mask, which is actually illegal in Louisiana. But hey, mm. life on the street in New Orleans is all theater and ritual. There's a great book about that, Cities of the Dead. Cities of the Dead. The title refers to New Orleans cemeteries. Which are above-ground cemeteries. Right, Cities of the Dead, because the water table of New Orleans is so high that you can't bury people underground. In the old days, when they did bury people underground, sometimes they'd ooze up to the surface in a rainstorm. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, imagine you're trying to make your way through the mud and you step on a hand. Ugh. To say nothing of the hygienic problems caused by drinking grandma. Hey, it's the time that gave us Anne Rice. Anyway, Cities of the Dead is by Joseph Roach, who used to be at Tulane in New Orleans and is now a professor of English at Yale. He's a theater historian who uses the concept of performance studies to look at New Orleans. I talked to Joseph Roach the other day and I asked him to explain performance studies. The idea is that the theater is a very expansive phenomenon. It isn't simply found in buildings with proscenium arches. That's the picture frame through which in a theater we look at the stage. It can be found outside of theaters, uh, in streets and in churches and in walks of life, just daily walks of life, people build their lives around performances, little rituals that are an important part of who they are and an important part of who people are speaking broadly about cultures and even nations. When we think of the changing of the guard at the tomb of the unknown soldier, it's a real performance about being a nation. Joseph Roach writes, there is no agreed upon explanation for the origins of present day Mardi Gras Indians in New Orleans, and it would be surprising if one were ever established. But he lays out the evidence for the influence on the early Mardi Gras Indians of Buffalo Bill's Wild West show, which played New Orleans in December 1884. As part of the publicity for the show, the company, which included fully costumed Plains Indian warriors, paraded through the streets of the city. This was before movies, of course, so seeing these people on your streets would have been like a hallucination. It could have made a tremendous impression. And of course, by parading through the streets of New Orleans, the Indians were allowed to display their culture at a time when blacks were not allowed to display theirs. Four decades before, black people were playing ancestral dances in Congo Square, but by the 1880s, it was the era of Jim Crow and lynchings. Not everybody likes this Wild West show idea as an explanation. Here's what Joseph Roach said. That can be a very touchy point, and understandably so with the Buffalo Bill Wild West signifying manifest destiny and Anglo culture as supreme. Not everyone is enthusiastic about that narrative that puts the Wild West shows in New Orleans in the 1880s as a formative moment for masking Indian. In fact, you can go back to the Cabildo and the Spanish regime in the 1780s and find a prescriptions against wearing feathers at carnival. I think, because no one really knows, 
that maybe the Mardi Gras Indian tradition grew up in layers. For example, certainly the African-American groups may have been masking already, but got the idea of the big feathered headdresses from seeing the Buffalo Bill people in the street. It's quite possible because there's Plains Indian icons in the beadwork of Mardi Gras Indian tradition, very distinctly so. I mean the pictures, not necessarily the way they're sewn, but the images that are created. And that seems to be a citation. But then Louisiana was a crossroads, and New Orleans was an entrepot of all kinds of cultural forms from all over. And it isn't surprising that what you have is an inexplicably complicated genealogy of performance. It seems like one of the great things about the Mardi Gras Indian tradition is that nobody's quite sure what its origin is. Isn't it wonderful? Yes, there's so many good stories, and it's powerful that it can't be pinned down and and documented to any one thing. It's part of the beauty of it, I think. I think it is. It's part of the eloquence. But it certainly has to be said that this is an African reinvention. I don't say an African retention. I say an African reinvention, citing the forms of West African performance culture. It certainly honors Native American forms as well. You know, my wife and I went to see Bo Dallas, big chief of the Wild Magnolias, who also does shows singing his repertoire in clubs. And after the show, she said something to me that I had been thinking. She said, without the Mardi Gras Indians, the whole rest of it would crumble. <laughs> I think that's a very astute observation. Uh, to me, it was the, uh, the heart and soul of Carnival. I hope that your listeners can have the experience if they had on this side, because... It's one of the great uh, North American achievements in performance. It's like the great achievement of jazz or symphonic music or our great stars and artists of the history of American theater. I asked Big Chief Donald Harrison about the origins of the Indians. Ned, I know a bebop alto sax player named Donald Harrison. Is this the same guy, the guy you played with Art Blakey? Same guy. Donald's father, Donald Harrison Sr., was a big chief, and Donald's been a Mardi Gras Indian since he was two. Now he's the big chief of his own tribe, Congo Nation. Here's what he said. No one really knows how the Mardi Gras Indians started, but the only thing that we do know about New Orleans culture that I know is that in Congo Square, the practices were held on Sundays. They were called practices. We also know that the people gathered by their tribes and they would practice, and then they would challenge each other to see who was the best. If you were Yoruba or Efik, you would challenge each other by tribes to see who were the best. And uh, when you met each other, it was called being in the circle. And uh, we know that the Mardi Gras Indians still have uh, practices on Sundays. And we know that when the Indians meet each other, it's in the circle. And we know that they still challenge each other to see who's the best. So those are elements that are still alive. You know, I have friends who are Yoruba from Africa, and it's an immediate connection when they hear the music that I do. For me, it's about either you can do it or you can't. You know what I'm saying? Can you come inside of this? I give respect to a person who has all the elements. You know, like Michael Jordan said, who's going to be good at something? The guy who doesn't take shortcuts. So I just look at people and say, oh yeah, he can sing, he can dance, he can sew, he can make a suit. He knows what he's doing. Ned, what style is the music of the Mardi Gras Indians? 
In its simplest form, it's a call and response chant with tambourines, but people are still coming up with new tunes and new ways to play them. The amazing thing about it to me is that, maybe because it's older than jazz or any of our other modern genres of African-American music, you can put any kind of clothes on them. You can play Mardi Gras Indian songs as jazz. You can play them as 50s mambo R&B. You can do them as 70s funk. And you can do them with a drum machine. Like this track by Cyril Neville and the Uptown All-Stars. Get ready to play Indian, y'all. They don't do this nowhere else but in New Orleans. Here come the wild chapatula. Yeah, we the uptown ruler. From way uptown, y'all, in the big 13. We coming out mighty about morning. Ain't giving no kind of warning. Gonna be the prettiest down in New Orleans. You can see Chief Jolly coming. You can hear his big gang coming. You can hear them coming all over the 13 wall. He shoot Kuna Funa. Make the ship a Una. No Ubao, y'all. And he won't be bald. Jolly be hooping and hollering. Say we gon' meet everybody. Then everybody sing Indian Red. And then we head for the heart of the city Yeah, y'all, we wild and pretty We the uptown rulers just like I said Sing it We the uptown rulers, yeah We the wild chapatula, yeah From way uptown, y'all, in the big 13 And we coming out mighty brown morning Ain't giving no kind of warning Gonna be the prettiest down in New Orleans The wild man, he take off running Spy boy, see another gang coming Big Chief, stop on the avenue Flag coming running on the double Signaling that it might be trouble Big Chief said, do like you wanna do As I dress in my suit, giving haters the boot Straight up a wild, that one reminded my crew It's gangsta, I've been looking shy, I've pretty Chief Jolly, little gang, showing haters go pretty From the north to the south, from the east to the west Chief Jolly and his gang, showing them how to dress So in case you don't know, we ain't feeling nobody Little gang, so never give a shout out to Jolly Y'all, but it feels so good Coming through our neighborhood Big Chief smoking that fire brain Downtown to Walsh Tremaine Yeah, boy, we going all the way down Then coming back home to the Big 13 Yes, y'all, we the wild chapatula Yeah, we the uptown ruler From way uptown, y'all, in the Big 13 We coming out mighty by morning Ain't giving no kind of warning Gonna be the prettiest down in New Orleans Come 
the way, nobody running. Get out the way, tambourine ringing. Get out the way, Indian singing. Get out the way, oh my the ground on. Get out the way, give them no warning. Get out the way, uptown ruler. Get out the way, wild chapatula. Cyril Neville and the Uptown All-Stars. The tune is called Big Chief Jolly, commemorating his uncle. You can see Ned Sublet's photos of the Big Chiefs and the parades and the sacrificial expenditure of Mardi Gras beads, as well as interviews with some of today's guests, on our website, afropop.org. I'm Georges Collinet, and you're listening to Afropop Worldwide from PRI, Public Radio International. This is Josh Collinet reminding you that this program was produced in spring 2005 before the devastation of Hurricane Katrina. So now, Ned, did you get to see the big chiefs in action on Mardi Gras Day? When I first got to New Orleans, I thought they would be much more visible. But you have to hunt for them. They're not domesticated, they don't publish their schedules, and they don't go out with a big parade. They have a small entourage, six to eight people. The one who goes ahead of the group is called the Spy Boy, and he looks to see if there are other Indians in the area. On Mardi Gras Day 2005, I was out in front of the Backstreet Cultural Museum. Big Chief Alfred Doucette was there in a splendid yellow outfit with his Flaming Arrows tribe. I heard drums coming up the street. Congo Nation, with Big Chief Donald Harrison in a spectacular black and gray feathered suit, and a little chief at his side. There was a dramatic ritual as one big chief approached the other. They greeted each other and posed for pictures. When I caught up with Donald Harrison later, I asked him what was going on in that exchange. I mean, basically, it's like two heads of state meeting and going through the pop and circumstance that if two kings met. You know, but from a, a different perspective, or two chiefs, you know, and uh, in order for each to greet each other, there's rituals that have to take place. You have to practice the rituals, and because it's sort of like a warrior culture, so you have to practice the rituals for the chiefs to meet each other. Back in the days, encounters between tribes could be dangerous, no? Especially back before the 1940s. New Orleans is very territorial and the tribes might try to make one another bow down, as they called it. 
If someone wouldn't bow down, there could be a fight. They called them humbugs with real weapons, and people would wind up in charity hospital or killed. Beefs would sometimes be taken over to the battlefield to be settled. That was about where the Superdome is now. Indians don't fight each other much nowadays, but there's always the potential for conflict. I asked Donald Harrison about that. In the time that you've been doing this, have you encountered a situation where there was not a respectful greeting or where there was some kind of confrontation? Yeah, that happens. That's part of it. <laughs> I accept that part of it. But it's happened. Yeah, it happens every Mardi Gras. <laughs> Maybe not to me every Mardi Gras, but you know, yeah, it happens, for sure. <laughs> you know what it is, it's in America, for African Americans, we've been emasculated to such a large extent. Really, the underlying code of what the Indians do is to say, today we're gonna be men. And no one really realizes that that's why I was saying my father was able to intellectualize what happened to us as a people. Everything that we have has been taken away from us. So another underlying element of that was, you know, uh, because we believe in this so hard that we're willing to die for this, it would scare away people who would try to take it over. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So there's a lot to that, uh, more than meets the eye. I had to ask Donald, once Mardi Gras is over, what happens to that beautiful, enormous suit that took you months to make? Well, it's at home now. I have a place, a storage facility where I put all my suits. My wife is asking me to put it up, but I'm just looking at it every day. <laughs> when I'm not on the road, admiring its grandeur. <laughs> Georges Collini with you on Afropop Worldwide from PRI, Public Radio International. More to come, but first... Funding for Afropop Worldwide comes from the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes a great nation deserves great art, and PRI, Public Radio International affiliate stations around the U.S. And thank you for supporting your public radio station. Let me toss out a question. When did Mardi Gras really get going? The cruise, that's K-R-E-W-E-S, date back to the 1850s. These are the private carnival organizations that make grand formal processions down St. Charles Avenue throwing beads, which is what most people think of as Mardi Gras. The crews were the elite of the city, and the 1850s was, of course, still slavery days. The first crew was Comus, and at the time Comus was founded, there were some 25 active slave dealer showrooms in the vicinity of Canal Street, where, if you had money, you could buy a human being that you could do anything to that you wanted. It wasn't that long ago. And in New Orleans, where so many of the buildings and even some of the Mardi Gras institutions stem from that time, reminders are all around. Comus stopped parading in 1991 rather than comply with the city ordinance to desegregate. I asked Joseph Roach to run down the history. You have a carnival tradition which is Latinate and deeply historic, but waning at the time that the Anglo-Americans come to Louisiana. And 
In the 1850s, white Anglos revived the old Latin idea of Mardi Gras, but inserted themselves into the position of the chief revelers. And they did this by means of secret clubs and secret parading organizations. They were doubled. So there was a group called the Pickwick Club, and that was the building and the institution to which these gentlemen were affiliated. And then there was the crew of Comus, which was the face of carnival, when the same gentlemen took to the streets in masked parades. In the case of Comus, brilliantly costumed and provisioned by expert designers, their costumes and floats were quite grand. And during the carnival season, they operated against the law of Louisiana, which forbade masking. They were above the law. They practiced what you might term sovereign immunity, just as monarchs, because of their social position. And carnival itself became a means of perpetuating that position because in addition to the parades and the visible festival in the streets, there were private balls to which only the most socially desirable were invited. And it's no secret that it was a way of policing racial boundaries in a society in which those boundaries had been severely tested, shall we say, in the Creole past, in which bloodlines were controversial and complicated. And the coming out balls were a way of attempting philosophically, if not in absolute practice, of keeping white Anglo society, white Anglo society, now and in the future. Ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, people with jobs, people without jobs, middle class, upper class, high class, all that. Cats, snakes, chickens, ducks, elderly people, and twerkers, I present to you. And all the while, there is an Afrocentric carnival going on that never really waned, as far as I know that kept its traditions outside of the law, since slaves were forbidden in colonial times and in Anglo times from assembling to have their revels, although funerals were exempted in the slave codes, and that provided an occasion on which slaves could gather and mark the passing of their brethren and celebrate their lives. But the carnival that most people think about when they think about New Orleans Mardi Gras I say in the popular imagination, people think of floats and fancy dress balls and the like. Those are the Anglo-centric crews centered in the various clubs and organizations. And of course, there's a powerful history to that as well because the crews and the clubs did more than organize carnival. They organized such events as the coup d'etat of 1874 against the racially mixed reconstruction regime of William Pitt Kellogg. He's talking about a major event in Louisiana history. After the Civil War, there was an integrated reconstruction government in Louisiana with blacks in the legislature, a black lieutenant governor, and integrated Louisiana schools. This government was overthrown in 1874 by military action which led to the end of Reconstruction in Louisiana and installed the so-called Redeemer government. It's an important event in understanding the status of Carnival in New Orleans historically. 
the elite of New Orleans was restive under the Reconstruction regime, which was a mixed-race regime, and sought to overthrow it. And they succeeded in doing so, although a bit indirectly, but the signal event was a military coup. It can't be described uh, more accurately than that, except maybe to call it an act of terrorism. The White League, which had an interlocking directorate with the Carnival crews, massed their forces in organized military units with artillery and infantry under the command of Civil War veterans and marched on the state militia, who, alerted to this, were brought together to try to stop them from seizing a shipment of arms which had been landed down uh, by the Mint on the Mississippi levee. And the uh, White League defeated the militia, killed 14 state police or state troopers and militiamen, and seized the shipment of arms. That event really ultimately led to the failure of Reconstruction in Louisiana and the rise of Bourbon Redemption, and eventually to Jim Crow and all the other consequences that pertain thereto. In other words, this coup d'etat of white supremacy was organized by some of the leading citizens of the town who were part of the Carnival Cruise. So these social organizations had quite a serious effect. Now, Ned, what about Zulu? The famous Zulu started in 1909. It was the one black crew. Now it's integrated, but mostly black. And it's the only popular event I know of in the United States that still goes on in blackface. Hmm. Zulu members wear blackface with exaggerated white outlines on their eyes and mouths. They wear grass skirts and they throw coconuts. Ouch! They're tremendously popular, and it was the best crew parade that I saw. Here's Joseph Roach. It was originally called the Tramps, and uh, the story is some inventive African Americans saw a minstrel show in which they heard a number, There Never Was a King Like This, and it was a parody of African forms of religion and culture. And the tramps took that over in an ironic way. There's an old slave saying, hitting a straight lick with a crooked stick. And you can take over the forms of people who are mocking you and turn it around and turn it back at those who are doing the mocking by imitating those who are mocking you. And I think that is part of the energy of Zulu. Not all of it. Talk about the Zulu King, y'all. Talk about the Zulu King. They rolling, they drew the city. I did a way down in New Orleans. Talking about the Zulu King. They coconut milk. I said running through the city. They all over town. They everybody hollering. Talking about the Zulu King, y'all. Talking about the Zulu King. 
Talking about the Zulu King, y'all. Talking about the Zulu King. Talking about the Zulu King, y'all. Talking about the Zulu King. James and Troy Andrews with Talking About the Zulu King, living in New Orleans on Afropop Worldwide's Hip Deep. Georges Collinet and Ned Sublet with you. Now, Ned, I keep hearing about throwing things. Until I went through a Mardi Gras myself, I had no idea to what extent these big parades are all about throwing beads. You have these humongous floats going past, each one of them two stories high, with riders on both levels, all masked and all throwing beads. And the trees, the trees get absolutely covered with beads, which remain there all year, so it looks like they're producing shiny colored beads as fruit. The crew members have to buy their own throws. Each member might spend $1,000 buying beads, and there are hundreds of maskers in a single parade. And there's parade after parade, sometimes three of them back to back down the same avenue from January 5th through Fat Tuesday. They throw tons and tons of these cheap acrylic beads, plus other tchotchkes like plastic doubloons or beer cups. The way you participate in these parades as an audience is to compete to catch the beads. It's about getting as much as you can, and it's enormously powerful. You find yourself getting pulled into it even against your will, throwing your hands up as these floats ride way high up in the air, throwing the beads down at you, and you're trying to get the most beads. The more beads you can wear around your neck, the cooler you are. Here's what Joseph Roach had to say about it. It's an artificial economy that reigns in Mardi Gras season. And it's a symbolic economy in which you can see the operation of social classes and groups much more starkly, well, I won't say more starkly, you see it's starkly enough just riding through the city, but much more performatively, much more vividly, more, much more colorfully than you do day to day. And there's a circuit of what I would call sacrificial expenditure, where you, you give away, and the power of the economy is both consuming and giving. And if you watch the uptown parades, The floats come along and they spew beads in every direction. For weeks thereafter, they're hanging in the trees along St. Charles and the other parade routes. And the rapturous crowds plead, throw me something, mister, to the floats. And if their performance is good enough, they're rewarded with this noblesse oblige, this shower from above of beads. But then the observer will also note that the crowds who are begging for beads will flip coins to the flambeaux, the largely African-American torchbearers who illuminate the night parades with the flambeaux, the torches that they wear on their backs and cast a beautiful flickering light over the crowd and over the floats and over the riders. It's part of the magic of carnival, but it's also extremely revealing that the circuit of sacrificial expenditure flows from the top down. You could call it the trickle-down effect of Mardi Gras economy. Now, I don't know how to bring this up exactly, but there's one tradition pretty much everybody knows about beads and Mardi Gras, where girls, well, you know... They flash their breasts in exchange for beads. Yeah. 
This only happens on Bourbon Street in the French Quarter. Of course. Which is kind of an adult entertainment zone. It's a sort of drunkenness theme park. <laughs> and it's strictly for tourists. And when this is going on on Bourbon Street, men outnumber women on the street by about 10 to 1. Uh, women are flashing and the men are, you know, looking. Black people in New Orleans don't seem too interested in this. It's mostly a white tourist thing. There's a professor of communications at Tulane, Dr. Vicki Meyer, who's been studying the flashing for beads phenomenon. She tracked its origins. Flashing rituals and bead exchange really didn't start until probably the late 1970s, as best we can trace back. The videotaping of flashing for beads really didn't take off commercially until 1988 when the first tapes were distributed either through the bars themselves or through uh, catalogs. This symbolic economy of bead exchange is almost, it is the economy, it's the marketplace for the valuation of Mardi Gras. I mean, everyone gets caught up. One of the, the reasons that women get really into flashing is to collect what's considered the most prestigious beads on the street so that even though they have no value outside of Mardi Gras, within Mardi Gras, there's an entire hierarchy of cheap throw beads, just simple plastic beads, a strand, and beads that are bigger, beads that uh, squeak or make noise or light up, they're now beads that are shaped like, you know, SpongeBob or anime animals. All of these fit into a hierarchy of value that is symbolic within the Mardi Gras ritual, right? So that to flash is really not just about exposing one's body, but getting the best beads possible for the exposure. And no touching the merchandise. Don't forget to visit our website for Ned Sublet's Mardi Gras photos and extended transcripts of our interviews with Joseph Roach, Donald Harrison, and Vicky Meyer. Thanks to them and thanks to Sylvester Francis and all the wonderful people at the Backstreet Cultural Museum. And thank you, Ned Sublet. Thank you, George. Visit Afropop.org for more. You can also find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at AfropopWW. My Afropop partner is Sean Barlow. Sean produces our program for World Music Productions. Research, field recording, and co-production for this program by Ned Sublet. And join us next week for another edition of Afropop Worldwide. Our chief photo engineer and co-producer is Michael Jones. Additional engineering by Mike Kaplan and Stephanie Lebeau. Banning Air edits our website, afropop.org. Our producer for new media is Atane Ofiadja. And I'm Georges Collinet. I like how them Victoria's Secret sitting at. Let me pour some more hip and Hennessy in your glass. Would I be violating? If I grab me a handful, I'm knowing what's happening. All I want is a sample. Who you with? I'm in the rental today. It's going down and happening, and I remember the way. Like, oh, I like it like that. She working that back. I don't know how to act. Slow motion for me. Slow motion for me. Slow motion for me. Moving slow motion for me. Slow motion for me.
me. Slow motion for me, moving slow motion for me. Slow motion for me, slow motion for me, moving slow. PRI Public Radio International.